Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Flight Corporal Jack Anderson, and I'm here with Flight Corporal Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Flight Corporal Madeline McConnell. Hi, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. So for this week, we have a pretty interesting topic. So last year during season one, we made an episode titled Aviation Stories, in which uh, each one of us researched our own aviation story and then presented it. That was actually one of our most popular episodes. So we figured we might as well do it again because there are a lot of very interesting stories out there that aren't long enough to fill an entire 20 minutes. So these are a few shorter stories that we found really interesting or really inspirational, things along those lines. So first of all, we are going to have uh, Flight Corporal Paul read his story. Thank you, Anderson. So, so our first story here revolves around Charles Carpenter, an American board in Edgetown, Illinois. And there's really isn't much on his childhood, but what we do know is that he worked as a high school teacher until the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1944. So he was 32 when he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force. And at first, he wanted to be a fighter pilot, but instead was assigned to be an artillery spotter flying this teeny tiny little L4 grasshopper. So the thing is about the L4 is, like I said, they're used as artillery spotters. And the enemy was therefore unlikely to shoot at them. Because the reason because of this is that since if the shotter gets spotted, if the spotter gets shot at, I can't speak. If the spotter gets shot at, they would know exactly where the enemy was and could call down artillery. So because of this, they could get pretty close to enemy positions and sometimes directly on top of them, and the enemy would just ignore them. So, um, Paul, I just want to ask, though, is that really a good idea, not shooting at the enemy uh, because they might notice you, even though they're shooting back at you? I mean, he's guiding artillery, and they decided not to shoot at him. Well, I mean, there, you got two options here. You either A, you either A, just hope that he didn't see you and move just in case, or B, shoot at him and definitely have him notice you. I guess, but then he's not really going to be able to, you know, come back and search your area again if you move. Well, well, even then, if he didn't spot you in the first place. Yeah, I guess the German Luftwaffe didn't really think of everything, did they? (laughs) I guess not. Okay. Sorry for interrupting. Adam, no problem. So after being deployed to France, Carpenter, inspired by some of the stories going around about pilots attaching bazookas to their planes, did it himself. So the reason he did this was the reason they did this was actually pretty simple. Um, German Panzer IV and especially Tiger tanks had very thick armor on their front and sides, which means that 90 percent of the shots taken were were out of the ricochet or did little to no damage. And because of. And so their idea was pretty simple. Strap bazookas to your plane and dive bomb on the, on the tanks. Uh, so, yes, it's brilliant. Because the tanks, they would save resources by not armoring the top of the tanks. It's who's going to shoot a tank from the top if everybody's on the ground? Uh, well, clearly this guy is going to be <laughs> shooting them from the top. Yeah, like only, only the Russians did that with IL-2s. And so, and so, yeah, he did that. Needless to say, Carpenter had some balls of steel. So what he did, right, was he attached six M1 bazookas to his L4, three on each wing. 
and he set them all to a board with six switches so that he could fire individual rockets or all of them at once. And uh, it worked wonderfully. So, Carp so Carpenter had his first chance to test his grasshopper, now named Rosie the Rocketer, a few weeks later at the Battle of Aircourt, September 20th, 1944. So he was credited with four tank kills and one half track, having to go back to base to rearm three separate times. So um, I think it's safe to say that his rockets worked pretty well. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw from that. Yeah, I'd say so. So there's one thing I didn't mention about the grasshopper is that they're essentially just a metal frame with fabric wrapped around it. And because of this, they produced a surprising amount of lift for their size. And because of that, they could take a good beating. So as long as the engine or the pilot wasn't hit, L4s could shrug off holes in the fuselage and wings fairly easily. So, and because of all of this, he was very, very good at what he did. Now, Carpenter, he, surprisingly, he didn't just fight in the air. At one, in fact, at one point, he was scouting out a landing zone in a jeep when he saw an American platoon being pinned down by Germans. So, without hesitation, Carpenter climbed onto the American platoon's, one of, one of their tanks, and got on the 50 caliber machine gun, and started shooting at the German tanks. Like, no hesitation. All the while riling up the, the Americans. However, after, get, after getting rid of the Germans, he accidentally hit a friendly tank. And because of this, he was court-martialed for recklessness, right? Um, the only thing that saved him from the firing squad was, uh, it turns out General Patton himself got the guy out of prison. And instead of punishing him, Patton gave Carpenter a silver star for his bravery. Carpenter then became fairly famous, appearing in a bunch of press accounts, such as Stars and Stripes, the Associated Press, and Liberty Magazine, being a few examples. When asked about his idea of war was, he replied, attack, attack, and attack again. And after destroying his fifth enemy tank, he told a Stars and Stripes correspondent, Word must be getting around to watch out for cubs with bazookas on them. Every time I show up, they sh now they shoot with everything they have. Never used to bother cubs. Bazookas must be bothering them a bit. I can see why Patton liked this guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. And so by the end of the war, Carpenter had been credited with six tank kills, but some estimates say this was closer to 14 enemy tanks, including two of the feared tiger tanks. And so in 1946, however, Carpenter contracted Hodgkin's disease and returned stateside and ended up, sorry, he returned stateside and returned to being a high school history teacher, dying in 1966. Rosie the Rocketer, however, ended up in a German plane yard where the bazookas were removed and it was painted with civilian colors. The plane was forgotten about for a while before it was tracked down by the Collings Foundation to Austria and restoration work began. And um, that was about two years ago. It's now sitting in the Collings Foundation American Heritage Museum, where the restorations were completed, I'm pretty sure a few months ago, and it is and it's perfectly flight ready. Now, however, because of the pandemic, they haven't been able to get it off the ground yet. But hopefully the next few years, Rosie the Rocketer shall see the skies again. Yeah, it's too bad that they weren't able to because of the pandemic, because yeah. it would have been super awesome to fly around a plane that someone as badass as um, 
what's his name? I forgot his name already, but Charles Carpenter. Charles Carpenter. Charles Carpenter. Thank you. Oh my God. I can't believe I forgot his name already, but he was a cool guy. That was a cool story. Oh yeah. Um, right. So next we have Flight Corporal McConnell. And I believe you said you were doing the story of the Dam Busters mission, correct? Yes, that is correct. First of all, I'd just like to say Flight Corporal Paul, that story was super interesting. I enjoyed listening to it. But now I'm going to be talking to you guys about the Dam Busters. The Dam Busters was a bombing raid that took place through the night of May 16th to 17th in the year 1943. 617 Squadron of the Royal Air Force was sent in to do a bombing raid. The Mon Dam was located in Germany's Ruhr Valley, and this dam provided and secured the water supply for much of the surrounding area. This water was also used to create electricity. The Royal Air Force first considered destroying these dams in 1937, but took them until 1942 to make a weapon strong enough to destroy these dams. Not only did they have to create a weapon, they also had to create an aircraft that was capable of carrying it. This weapon was called the bouncing bomb. The bouncing bomb was made to be able to skip across water. This idea was made by bouncing marbles in a tub. These were originally made to use on a mourned battleship, but later they were, they were thought to be more useful um, when bombing the dams. The RAF started carrying um, out extensive tests and sites all around the country. These tests came up with the solution of how high these bombs needed to be dropped from. Finally, in late March 1943, a new squadron was formed to carry out the raid of the dams. The code name was Squadron X. This team was made up from members from Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and the USA. The final name of the operation was called Chastai. The three uh, main targets were Mon, Eater, and the Scorp Dams. The Mon Dam was a curved gravity dam that was about 40 meters high and 650 meters long. Any attacking aircraft would be exposed on their immediate approach. At 9.28 p.m. on May 16th, 133 aircrew and 19 Lancasters took off in three waves to bomb these dams. After bombing these dams, at 1.52 a.m., two dams were destroyed. Aircraft from the other two waves bombed scored, but it still remained intact. Out of the 133 aircrew that took part, 53 men were killed and three became prisoners of war. On the ground, almost 1,300 people were killed and the result of flooding. This raid gave morale boost to the people in Britain. Yes, that was truly uh, a one-of-a-kind story. You don't really see stuff like that anymore where they develop this massive high-tech bomb that can be thrown across a lake and skipped right into a dam. I mean, I can really not think of any other example of that. Can you guys? No. Can't say I have. They probably thought something in like World War One, but... Possibly. Uh, yeah, that would not surprise me, but... Um, yeah, that is truly one of a kind. I have never heard anything like that. Um, yeah, it's crazy oh, that the idea was just made from skipping marbles across water in a bathtub in somebody's back garden. 
Yeah, right. I don't know how people would come up with that stuff. Like, uh, how would you see a marble getting skipped and think, hey, I can make a bomb like that. <laughs> but yeah, the, the mind works in weird ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, if I may add, actually, something, something that made this operation a bit extra dangerous was the fact that because the German fact that the RAF guys needed to be at a very specific elevation for this to work, what they did, right, was they strapped spotlights to the bottom of the Lancasters and they intervened that, like, I guess not really intervened, like the two, the two circles in the water from the spotlights when they formed into one circle, I guess that's the best way to explain it was when they're at the exact altitude, which was like 60 feet. Like it was super low. I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting little bit of trivia. Um, this one I just found out. It was, uh, there was actually a Dam Busters movie. Uh, it was made back in, I think, the 50s or the 60s. But the scene in that movie where they're flying down the canyon towards the, um, towards the dam to bomb it, and there's uh, guys on each side shooting at them, and then there's fighters. That's actually what they uh, got the idea for the trench run uh, on the Death Star from uh, the original Star Wars from. That is incredible. Yeah, it's really cool to think about that this random mission from World War II inspired one of the coolest scenes in movie history, like sci-fi history. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a nice coincidence there. Mm-hmm. All right, so without further ado, we're going to be moving on to my story which is the story of Douglas Barter, who is the fighter pilot from World War II who had two prosthetic legs. So he is a very inspirational story. He's a very cool guy. So he uh, was born on February 21st, 1910. He joined the RAF in 1928 when he was 18. Over the course of his career, he got a record of 22 kills, four shared kills, six probables, and 11 aircraft damage. So not only was he a fighter pilot, he was a fighter ace because you need five kills to qualify for that. So he, he was a very good pilot. He was a pretty cool guy. He was good at what he did. Um, so in December of 1931, he was involved in a crash while attempting a low-level stunt. Unfortunately, he was so badly injured that both of his legs had to be amputated. However, he faced his disability with determination and he soon learned to walk unaided on his prosthetic legs. In addition, he learned to dance, drive, and play golf. But there was only one job that interested him, and that was to be a fighter pilot. Unfortunately, at first, this was not allowed by the RAF's medical board, as they said it was impossible for someone without legs to properly fly. However, as World War II began, it became apparent that the RAF was going to need to have uh, more experienced pilots. So... um, During the Battle of Britain, in fact, it was said that most RAF fighter pilots only had 10 hours flying experience before they were being sent into battle. So they really did need more experienced pilots. So they were willing to let this guy fly. Um, So uh, in 1939, eight weeks after the war began, they approved him and they gave him his chance to prove that he was able to fly. So on his first solo, he actually pulled a few stunts. Like he flew upside down, uh, I believe they said 600 feet, which is completely illegal. That's not something you're supposed to be doing these days or even back then. Um, But his showing off did earn him the respect of the evaluators and they gave him his pilot's license back. 
He got his first combat experience on the 1st of June, 1940, while providing air support for the Dunkirk evacuation. His first kill was a BF-109 fighter. Now, during the Battle of Britain, he quickly racked up more kills, with five in just one day. So I want to say that again, because I don't think a lot of people realize that. I said earlier that you need five kills to be considered a fighter ace. He got that many in a single day. Again, that is something unheard of. Most fighter pilots now, they get maybe one or two kills in their entire career. This guy got five in a single day. Uh, let's see, where was I? Oh, yes. So between October 1940 and July 1941, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order and Bar and the Distinguished Flying Cross. One other interesting thing to note is that it was often said that he could pull tighter turns in his plane without fear of blacking out. So the reason you could do this is when you're pulling a lot of G's, the blood usually flows from your head down into your legs. And since there's no blood in your head, it causes you to pass out. But since he didn't have any legs, there was nowhere for this blood to go. So it all remained in his head and he was able to pull really tight turns. Uh, oh, lost my spot again. Where was I? Ah, yes. In August 1941, his luck ran out, though, during a dogfight over the French coast. It's still debated what caused him to go down. Some believe it was a mid-air collision, while others believe he may have been a victim of friendly fire. But whatever the cause, his aircraft was shot down. While bailing out, one of his legs became stuck and he was trapped. He fixed this by pulling the ripcord on his parachute, which sucked him out of the plane and broke the straps on his leg. Shortly after becoming a POW, he was introduced to Adolf Galland, one of Germany's top fighter aces. Galland ensured that uh, Barter was treated well while in captivity, and the two even became close friends. Amazingly, the German government sent a telegram to the RAF telling them that one of uh, Barter's prosthetic legs had been lost, and they asked to send a new one. Hermann Göring, the head of the Luftwaffe, even allowed a British bomber to fly in unopposed to drop the leg, though the Germans became angry when the bomber took advantage of this to raid a nearby power station. Well being a POW, Barter attempted escape several times. In one case, he tied all of the bedsheets from the hospital together and used them to repel out the window. In another instance, he used his legs to help a group of men tunnel out of prison. In fact, he attempted escape so often that one German commander threatened to have his legs taken away. Again, I want to uh, quickly re restate that he had no legs. He had prosthetic legs, and he was able to do all this awesome athletic stuff like rappelling out a window digging a tunnel that is all super cool stuff that most people never get to do even with their legs so this guy having prosthetic legs and being able to do that he was a badass he was super awesome uh where was i right so he attempted escape so often that he actually got transferred to uh, the Kolditz castle prison which had a reputation for being inescapable so yes, he escaped so often, despite the fact that he had no legs, that they had to transfer him to this massive max security prison deep inside the middle of Germany. So he remained there until 1945, when he was liberated by the US forces. Upon his release, he traveled to Paris and demanded to be given a spitfire again. So the war was almost over. He just got out of prison. And his first action was to go to Paris and demand to join the Air Force again. What a legend. Am I right? Uh, 
Oh my God, I keep losing my spot here. I got I to gotta put like a bookmark in here somewhere. Uh, right, so when he demanded the Spitfire, he was actually rejected this time. And the reason was that they had an overabundance of pilots. So they figured they'd rather have uh, a pilot with legs than one without them. Uh, he retired from the RAF in 1946. And later during the filming of the movie Battle of Britain, both him and Adolf Galland were advisors for the dogfighting scenes and often displayed strategies they used uh, with model planes. So we actually uh, talked a little bit about this a while ago. Uh, I think that was our second episode ever where we talked about the best aviation movies. And this was, one, this was one of the ones we talked about. These guys were fighter pilots during World War II and they actually helped make that. So again, that's not something big, but it's just a little cool piece of trivia. Uh, so, Barter continued campaigning for people with disabilities for many years, and in June of 1976, he was knighted for all of his hard work. On the 5th of September, 1982, after a dinner held in honor of the RAF's commander, Barter died of a heart attack. One of the many dignitaries present at his funeral was his friend, Adolf Galland. They had shared a friendship that had lasted over 40 years since their first meeting in France during World War II. Overall, Douglas Barter was one of the most legendary fighter pilots in history, and his story continues to serve as an inspirational, as an inspiration, sorry, to people with disabilities all over the world. So the main reason I love that guy's story is because at every turn, he was faced with a challenge, but he never gave up, and he accomplished his goal of becoming a fighter pilot. Um, I think that is something that it, is really important for people to hear nowadays. I think there are too many people who just give up when they're faced with challenge. I think everyone should be more like this guy. Whenever you're faced with something hard, just push on through it and accomplish your goal. Oh uh, yeah. I also feel like I should mention here. Um, it seems like it seems like a lot of pilots in world seems like there are a lot of pilots in World War II that made friends that made lifelong friendships with the enemy. Like that, you've got that is like, very interesting. Yeah, you've got cause... Bader. You you got Bader. You got Gallant. You've got Charlie Brown and Franz Stigler. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to look at because it shows that um, when they take off those uniforms, beneath it they're just men. They they can still be friends. They can still be civil with each other. Um, so even though they do some awful things to each other during war, beneath it they are all just men, and they can be friends with each other. Yeah. Now, with all of that said, with all three of those stories wrapped up, that is about our time for this evening. We'd like to once again thank you for listening to the AFG Geeks podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a Bye. good one. Bye, everyone.